You're listening to the Sexual Wellness Sessions with Kate Moyle. This episode was brought to you by Furley, the sexual wellness app empowering women and non-binary folk to overcome sexual challenges affecting their relationships. To date, they've helped over 200,000 women struggling with things like low libido, inability to orgasm, low body confidence, and or pain during sex. Furley's achieved this by guiding women through science-based tools and techniques that help them to feel better in their bodies and their beds. The app is available on iOS and Android, and you can download it free today and start your journey to a healthier, more confident, and more pleasurable life. I have the privilege of working with Furley as their resident advisor, and I truly believe that this app has the ability to be transformative for female sexual wellness. Today we're going to be tackling the topic of sexual shame and for me this is a theme and a feeling and a word that has come up in probably every single episode of this podcast that I've recorded and it certainly comes up in psychosexual therapy and I think that that shows really how much we need to have these conversations, how big a problem historically and currently still but less so the topic of sex, the taboo of sex really has been and I'm thrilled that my guest for this episode is Natalie Lee who through her brilliant platform Style Me Sunday has been tackling societal norms and challenging stigmas and now she's put it all into book form and it's coming out in a few weeks time. Feeling Myself is a memoir on sexual shame and Natalie I think it is incredibly amazing and brave that you've put it all out there for everybody to read because that in itself is the exact opposite of what the feeling of shame wants us to do which is to hide. Thank you so much for having me I'm really excited about our conversation today. All right so I'm thrilled because for me I think when we talk about the topic of shame we kind of understand it as this regulatory emotion so shame is about feeling bad for how others perceive us which is different to guilt, which is the idea of or the feeling of feeling bad for something that we've done. And there's such an irony for me in the fact that shame thrives in silence. And so that talking about it is the best way of challenging it, but it's the hardest thing for us to do. Yeah, absolutely. And you describe it great. I think shame is like this thing, this internal thing that sits in us. And I feel like, so So recently, I've tended to visualise it. And to me, it is like when you're in a room and there's like this little gremlin sitting in the corner, but you're pretending it's not there. So you're just going about your daily business and this little gremlin is like there, like almost silently, like poking you. But you're just like, la, 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 la. And just like, just, yeah, you just ignore it completely. And that's how shame kind of, that, that's how I've visualised it. And I think the reason why I decided to talk about it is because through my own experience, the, the things that have caused me shame have only felt better I've I I have only sort of lightened that load when I've been able to talk about it and especially publicly like the first time I think I talked about it was around body image and how I felt really awful after having children and how that changed my body but I I found it so difficult to talk about I was I was almost sick when I first posted about that. But then the response I got back was like, oh my God, we feel exactly the same. And this Mm. is like 10 years ago before like body positivity was a thing. So um, the reason why I chose to write the book and talk about it is basically through my own experience, I know that shining a light on shame has helped me so much. And I really want to empower others to not feel ashamed anymore. Mm. And I think that's pretty core and central to shame, isn't it? Is that we feel so ashamed that we 
don't ever voice it. Yeah. Or we feel so ashamed that we can't tell anyone. We feel so ashamed that we can't express how we're feeling because we fear that if we do, it will bring about more shame or more judgment or it will intensify how we're feeling. And I think what, to me, it feels like you're describing is that actually your experience was the opposite, is in so many people were able to relate to you and how you were feeling. And I think as women, we go through these relationships with our bodies anyway, where we go through such massive periods of change, even monthly with our monthly cycles, but through puberty and trying to conceive and pregnancy and childbirth and the postnatal period and menopause. And there are so many messages about women's bodies and we hear phrases like bounce back. I mean, I don't think I ever bounce back after having my children. I'm still in there. But even that sets up what is framed as an expectation or an ideal or definitely an expectation. And then we feel ashamed that we haven't reached that. But those are ideas that came from no rule book. No, exactly. These are things that have been imposed on us and we have Mm. no, like, we have no say in what is imposed on us or not. You know, it's like even before we're born, these ideals and expectations and assumptions have been made of us. For example, heterosexuality, you know, why do we always assume that the baby is going to be heterosexual? I am now like, it feels like my eyes have finally opened. Like, I'm like 41 now. And I've been through such a huge transition in the last year, few years. It's been very like slow and incremental. But the culmination of it is huge. I'm now like questioning everything. Everything I think and feel about myself is being brought into question. And I'm like, oh, oh, that's not mine. <laughs> Where did that come from? Why yeah. do I why do I think I've got like saggy boobs or big hips? Or why do I feel this shame around? having sex and masturbation, that that isn't something that comes from, well, I mean, it does come from within me because I've internalised it, but it's not something I was born with. Mm. So, um, yeah, it's just like, it's a bit of a, like, <laughs> it's a bit of a double-edged sword, you know. I, I'm questioning everything and it's, and it's, I feel lighter and better for it but also it's quite a painful process it's a really unraveling and unpacking all of that shit is hard Mm -hmm. it's not easy (laughs) it's so hard because also I think it can sometimes leave us with is a feeling of what would have been different if I hadn't been carrying that around with me what would have been different if I was taught about this in a different way. And we, we know that sex is one of the main things for me as a psychosexual therapist, having these conversations with people on a daily basis. We know that that is one of the big points, which brings a lot of people to therapy, which is how I was taught about sex was that it was something wrong or only to be done in a certain way, only to to never be discussed, to be... To, to basically be fitted into a box of the inverted commas right type of sex and that type of sex should be the only sex we should be having and God forbid we do anything that's outside of that. And if we do, then that means something very, very bad about us. But the conversations I have with people a lot are when we break down where all these messages come from is, okay, but do we... So much of it is across generations, but also then the previous generation or the generation kind of giving us the information weren't necessarily equipped themselves. So sometimes they're doing the best that they can do with the information that they've got. My God, completely. They are absolutely, like, there's absolutely, I have absolutely no blame in terms of, like, my parents and the whole shame surrounding sex. Because even though I never spoke 
about sex at home, she she thought she was, you know, my mum was a single parent. She thought she was doing the best she could because you're, we're kind of told, especially in my generation anyway, that not talk, you know, if you don't talk about it, that's better because if you talk about it, you'll turn them into even more sexualized being. And so my whole philosophy on that has completely changed. I now know the more I talk about it with my children, the more informed they are. And actually, it's a safeguarding issue because if they know the proper names for things, then they can talk openly with me and they know that I'm not ashamed to talk about it because I call a vulva a vulva and a vagina a vagina and a penis a penis. You know, we use the proper names because if you don't, it... it it shows that you're not comfortable talking about mm. these things. And I want them to feel comfortable talking about these things. It's the most natural thing in the world, you know. So why is there this big, huge thing attached to it that makes us feel like it has to be pushed under the carpet? Mm. I had a conversation in one of the other episodes in this series with Sarah Sproul, who's a sex educator, exactly about this. We have this fear that if we talk to our children about it, that in some way it sexualizes them earlier. And I heard you say something to Anna Whitehouse, which was, how can we create autonomy over our bodies if we don't touch it or name it? Exactly. And there's so much about that, which is educational and informative. And for example, I say to my children, you can call it what you want as long as you know what the proper names for it are. As long as you know what the anatomical name is, yeah. When you use the other word, just know that that's like a nickname. Yeah. And that's the age and stage that they're at. And it's age appropriate for that. But I very much believe that in at least having the information, then there's a choice involved rather than not having the the anatomically correct words. Yes. And I think that we see this real intensifying of shame when it comes to sex and I wondered if you have your own ideas or theory about why you think that is, or is it just because we've got shame, which is by nature so taboo, and we're almost ashamed to admit that we have shame, and then we've got sex, which has <laughs> always been taboo and stigmatised, and it's just the ultimate sandwich, essentially, of two things that in society we find so difficult? I think sex has been used as a way to control us, especially women. I think... Mm. Um, you know, you can see in terms of where, how people talk about it. You know, we we have we've talked about expectations before and how, you know, especially women, especially mothers, have huge expectations around them and uh, judgment when it comes to sex. And I think, you know, religion has a huge part to play in that control and that shame aspect, you know, and this goes back so far, you know, I'm sure I don't have the evidence, but anecdotally, I know that like, you know, in Victorian times, there's a certain way that a woman was expected to behave. And if she didn't behave like that, she got societal judgment and you know she might have been banished kicked out yeah yeah there is so there's so much judgment coming in all directions that it's impossible not to feel shame around sex for us and that's what we have to get rid of kick out (laughs) (laughs) we're trying (laughs) trying slowly we're trying and How has that been for you, writing a book about it? Because I suppose you're putting it all out there. And I know that's the the point. It's a memoir, a manifesto. But I guess that must be such a big thing for you personally as well, because you are in a way displaying your shame. And I know it's about sexual shame and about trauma, but does it feel like a taking ownership of it? Absolutely. That's the whole reason why I wrote the book I I wanted to take back control you know I felt like there were certain things in my life that not a lot of people knew about and for a long time I felt like if they only knew the real truth about me 
they wouldn't, their opinion of me would, would change. They wouldn't like me. They wouldn't think that I'm a, a good person. And so sort of analysing that, uncovering that, I'm like, here it is. It's all out there. It's it. You can read it in a book now and it's no longer going to hold me hostage. Like, you know, the worst things that have ever happened to me. And I'm still alive. I'm still surviving. And I'm not going to lie. It has been really hard because some things, well, most things don't just involve me, they involve other people too. So thinking about their feelings and how that affects them has been incredibly difficult. I've had to have some joint counselling sessions with some members of my family. And um, yeah, it's it's been very difficult to navigate, I'm not going to lie. But um, for, for much of my life, I felt like... I felt like I wanted to use my voice, but I felt like I was opening my mouth and there was no sound coming out. It felt like there was this big, expansive black hole and I was trying to scream and no, nothing was coming out. And so I had that very visceral sort of feeling and this has enabled that sound to come out. And I think that's really important. Do you think that feeling is shame? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I feel that, I, you know, I, I'm not going to say like I'm completely shame free because I definitely I'm, I'm not. But being able to speak it out has definitely lightened the shame load mm. for sure. And also, you know, just the whole process, it... It's helped me intellectualise it. It's helped me reconnect with myself, helped me understand myself better. Um, Because I do think that shame and blame are intrinsically linked. I feel that for a lot of the things that I was ashamed of, there was a part of me that blamed myself for it. Because otherwise, why wouldn't I speak about it? Why wouldn't, you know, why wouldn't I just bring it up into conversations? You know, some of the very traumatic events of my life, like some, my, my, my closest friends didn't know because I was so ashamed. And especially when you're, when you're a child, you know, when, these things that you didn't ask for happen to you. You have no idea why they're happening. Mm. But as as a child, you just blame yourself because who else is there to blame? It's too difficult to blame anyone else. It's so layered with complexity, especially if it's, you know, if it involves somebody who you love. It's really difficult. Um, And yeah, that whole blame factor is huge for me. And just releasing that, understanding that often it's not our fault. Or even if we do feel that in some way we contributed to it, we have an understanding of why and where we were at that time. You know, Mm. that helps release the blame too. Well, because... As children and young people, we don't have the ability to kind of think critically about the context or what else might be going on or the involvement of adults or any other. We we only have, I suppose, the ability to think about our part in it because we're also just not psychologically developed enough to be able to pull it all apart, which is why so many people can do that at a later stage when they feel ready yeah. to start exploring or start opening it up. But we do carry the weight of that with us and the fear that it might happen again or that mm. if we... And, you know, you quite often talk to 
people who say, oh, well, the belief I had was that if I was good, something like that wouldn't happen again. Or if I behaved a certain way or did everything a certain way or, you know, kept my mouth shut or what we see particularly with um, women dressed a certain way, then that would be me trying to ensure it doesn't happen again. And a lot of that is about us trying to take control over situations that we felt previously were out of our control. So things that were traumatic or shaming. But also society doesn't help us not feel like that. You know, when when there is a, a sexual assault case in, in court, they'll, they'll hold up what the woman was wearing, what underwear they were wearing. How does that have anything to do with being attacked? You know, this whole victim blame sort of, society Mm. it normalizes it it normalizes that victim blaming so it's so even as adults we we take on that guilt and shame and and blame definitely and I was that was one of the questions I think I had for you is how do we separate these things out and I don't know what you kind of feel like your experiences of this are but we have quite a blame society at the moment and not only just blaming, but also shaming. You know, we see things like trolling, which are shaming. We see victim blaming, which is a, you know, a known phrase, examples that you've just given. And I think I can't work out if it's because what we're trying to do is a lot of the time externalise it. So if we're always pointing the finger at someone else, it's that adverse reaction to feeling it internally. But it's become an unhealthy way of doing it. And productive isn't the right word, but a um, almost completely counterproductive way of us working through some of this stuff. Absolutely. Um, This morning I wrote a a journaling prompt um, for a group that I'm in. I'm a, a huge believer if you don't turn inwards then none of your relational dynamics are ever going to change. We have to stop projecting and moaning about other people who are frustrating us and how awful they are. We are part of the problem. So if we don't look inwards and look at our own role in that dynamic, nothing's going to ever change. So it's, that's what I've seen in, in my life. I've got much calmer and happier when I've acknowledged that I have a part to play in who has access to me and how they have access to me Mm. and stop projecting all of my frustrations onto everyone else and thinking it's their fault. So, yeah, I think in general, society does have that issue about just thinking everyone else is so terrible but there's no there's no reflection where's the where's where's the where's the learning of from that I don't get it so you know there's a lot of a lot of internal questioning that has to go on otherwise we just don't progress yeah absolutely and how have you done that because I know you said the last kind of few years have really changed a lot for you and you've started to break away from shame and blame but is there something particularly that you found really helpful or that has really changed things for you or any point that you felt you really turned a corner or had a breakthrough? I got curious. I got really curious about understanding myself and I wanted to change patterns Um, I sought therapy and, and you know what, it took me a long time to find the right therapist. You know, I think, I think we just assume like, oh, you go to therapy. Oh, it's all going to be fixed. It's all going to be fine. Um, and actually that really isn't the case. Like I, I, I went through quite a few therapists who I didn't feel Mm-hmm. We connected and it didn't gel for me. Sometimes it was going a bit too slowly and they were not as kind of forthright as me. 
and that just frustrated me. So, you know, if all if you don't find the right person, then I've, I think it's going to be difficult to to make good, you know, moves within therapy. So I really I was I, I was quite diligent about like I feel like it's a bit like dating. Consider it as dating. You're not going to jump into the first like person that you meet. Probably not. You're going to like really you know, have a few and think about it, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. I I always talk to people who inquire or have a first session with me. I always say, go away, think about it for 24 hours or have a few first sessions with other therapists or have a couple. I always say to people, try and have a couple of conversations with people before you book a first session because you, I might not be the right fit for you. And it's fine if I'm not. And that's no problem because... You don't like everyone you meet in the rest of your life. You don't click with everyone. You don't have a really great relationship with all your colleagues. You don't even like all your family members. So you shouldn't expect for a therapist to be the same thing. And also, therapy is really subjective. Someone can have 20 qualifications. Exactly. It doesn't mean that the best qualified therapist is the right therapist for you. And I think that that is a part of it. And the bulk of the therapy work is done in the relationship between client and therapist and the relationship has to be the bit that holds everything else. Exactly. I think the difficulty is, is that we hold therapists on a kind of pedestal, right? So it's very difficult to say, oh, actually, well, you we don't gel. Yeah. Like you were, mm-hmm. you do, you come in with such huge expectations that they are going to be the fix all to your problems. So that's why I think people struggle with thinking, okay, well, actually, our personalities Mm. don't quite work together. But anyway, so therapy has been a huge thing for me. Um, But just getting curious generally, like, like books and podcasts and in terms of my daily practice, meditation has been absolutely huge for me. Um. And that's obviously free. Just spending 10 minutes every single morning. You know, I tell my children, look, I'm about to meditate. So for 10 minutes, I'm not going to be available to you. Um, And they are like, they anticipate it now. They're like, okay, so you're going to go and meditate? I'm like, yeah, I I am. (laughs) And that time just spent being still, it kind of recalibrates my body enables me to take a breath before responding and they it it slows down my nervous system and I'm not in a shoulders up kind of tense tightly coiled you know uh state because I've deep deeply breathed into my body and I think for so long I breathed from my chest and I and I I didn't know what it was like to breathe deeply and to Mm. sort of slow everything down a little bit so other things like breath work and journaling have all been great but I think meditation is probably the most important one for me in terms of my daily practice and and also remembering to do it when I feel good and when I feel bad because I'll notice that I'll be like, oh, no, I'm fine. I'm absolutely fine now. And then I don't do it for a while. And then, bang, I get, like, triggered and everything just goes up in the air and blows up. Mm. So, yeah, it's been a good one for me. So it's quite preventative. Yeah. Oh, God, hugely preventative. And do you think the theme of all of those things is that they are bringing you, like, back into yourself and back into your body? Because... I think that shame a lot of the time means that we disconnect, we disassociate, we almost separate ourselves. And a lot of the time it's, well, the majority of the time, it's like a protection mechanism because in order to function and to get through, we have to almost separate ourselves off or separate our minds and our bodies or disconnect the two because it can be too painful. And so all of the practices that you're saying, for me, I was just thinking they all feel like things that help you to come back into your body. Yeah. 
and how massively that relates to sex? So I would say for the longest time, I felt like, oh, you know what? I'm really stable. I'm really quite together. I I don't show much emotion. I struggled with being able to connect emotionally. I had very little empathy with other people. And that's because I was so disconnected. And once I started to come back to my body, I wasn't quite as emotionally stable as I thought. But that was so necessary because, as you said, I was just completely dissociated. I um, I was in a trauma response of freeze. And therefore, you know, I remember, you know, I, I struggled to orgasm, for example, when I had sex. It was a I was very much in my head. I couldn't connect my body to my head. And yeah, I really, I, 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 I was just kind of going through life, but there was very little peaks and troughs, very, because that was, that was my coping mechanism. That was how I survived. Yeah. Absolutely. And so now... Now I've connected to my body, I'm like, oh, fuck, I'm not actually sure if I actually want all this because, <laughs> because it is a lot, right? How, how do, like, normal people cope with all these emotions? It's a lot. <laughs> but um, it's, it's also enabled me to have the most beautiful and magical and deep connections with people that I never had before. And that is worth all of the lows and the pain and the struggles mm. because that's that is magical yeah to be vulnerable it's the risk to be vulnerable that's so difficult it's the risk taking isn't it it's the risk to get close and one of the things about shame is it feels like if we show someone our true selves with all of our shame on show that they will reject us or further shame us and that would almost feel like the worst thing so it feels better to manage and control and as you say have more of a constant exactly we don't risk the highs for the cost of the lows but in that way then we are it is that that toned down or minimized version of ourselves yeah it's like living in black and white isn't it and then you know, suddenly when we start to connect our mind with our body, then the colour comes back. Mm. That's how it feels to me. Mm. And luckily the colours come back. (laughs) But yeah, as I say, it's not always easy. It's not always easy. And do you think the connection to sex and not being able to orgasm there is that letting go bit? Oh God, so much. I really struggled to let go. I really, really struggled to let go. I struggled to get out of my head and into my body. And yeah, I guess I, I, I guess I didn't know what would happen if I let go. I think I thought I would crumble. I thought I would be mm. a mess on the floor. So it was so much easier to just hold it all in. Not easier, actually, because... there's nothing easy about holding it in I just thought I just didn't know any other way I just didn't know any other way Mm. um and I didn't realize how much I was missing out on because I wasn't able to connect to my body now I know but an orgasm is is basically that peak experience is that let go it is that you know, I've said so many people have said to me things like, I feel like if I let myself, you know, I might fall off the cliff, I might have an orgasm and not know how I'm going to feel or how I'm going to get back from that. What about if I have a really strong emotional response? How will my partner respond? I will feel completely out of control. And for me, that feels like the scariest thing, even if it's the thing I want the most. Yeah, so true. It's so true because when you orgasm, for me, it's, 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 it's a bit like meditation, You know, I really have to focus on feeling and just let go to the process. And and I guess I guess the kind of physical uh, 
like personification of that kind of letting go and orgasming is you feel like, oh my God, so if I do let go and allow myself to orgasm, like all, all this, like I might wet myself, I might poo myself, like all these things might just come out and that's really scary. Um, mm. And I guess what I hope to sort of have got across in my book is that it, it might feel like you're going to be opening Pandora's box by delving into these difficult topics. But through my experience, if you are able to look at it carefully in a safe environment, it isn't as bad as you think it's going to be. Because especially if you, you do do it within therapy and you find the right therapist, I felt like somebody else like showed me an, that you can look through another window and they were going to hold my hand. Mm. And if I fell, that they were going to support me. And I, and I, yeah, and I felt like I don't really feel like I ever had that. I don't feel like I ever had that safety net. So there was, who was going to pick me up? And, and partly that's my own issue because I had this intimacy issue. I had this connection issue because I was unable to let myself go. And that's... Or unable to trust. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Unable to trust. And it is, it's such a huge thing, isn't it? Having sex and, and being able to connect with another person is such a huge thing sometimes. You have to be able to trust that person. And if there's trauma attached to the act, you know, how the fuck do you overcome that to enable yourself to let go to be able to trust somebody else? Because... You've been hurt. You've been deeply wounded. I, I don't have all the answers. I'm sure you have. <laughs> oh, God, no, I never pretend to have the answers. <laughs> but I think that the thing about when we have sexual trauma is so many sexual situations, we are risking re-traumatising ourselves. And that is one of the hardest things I think for people to navigate when they are recovering from and working through or sexual trauma because the thing that was so traumatic for us is also the vehicle to us getting what we want but also working through it. Yeah. And you have to break down and rebuild a relationship with sex or your body. And I think that's one of the things I really wanted us to kind of also include in this conversation was this idea of if we are dealing with sexual shame and by virtue of it, a lot of the time sexual trauma in whatever form that might look like to someone, sex is something where we feel we can't hide our body a lot of the time or we might try to, but that in itself will cause challenges and in our bodies feeling so much and being the vessel for sexual shame a lot of the time even the act of being naked or present with someone else or in a sexual situation with someone else or having someone else touch us feels so intense or the whole premise might be that we are unable to be enjoying it or having a pleasurable experience or even allowing ourselves to be present and not just completely dissociated and kind of trying to get through something. And I imagine that a lot of the people that might listen to this episode and see that the title is about sexual shame will be feeling like that, will be thinking, how do I use the word triggers earlier? You know, how do I manage feeling triggered? How do I know how to avoid triggers and what we know is that triggers can come in so many different shapes and forms and we can't control all of them because it could be something like a smell or a sound or a type of touch or I mean it could be anything a thought a feeling but how do I navigate sex and relationships if sexual shame is the overriding feeling that I have 
yeah when it comes to this stuff one of one of the things that sort of uh has I, i've remembered in terms of helping me overcome the kind of sexual blocks i would say has been um reconnecting to my body so has been looking at my body has been touching my body has been you know exploring it again not even again really i feel like it's almost it was almost like for the first time but if you can't connect with yourself you're going to struggle to connect with other people so mm. for me masturbation was a huge sort of part of my process in coming back to myself again and in 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 learning how to how to trust myself first and then being able to trust other people um but that sort of yeah learning what i liked what i didn't like just 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 not feeling the shame about touching myself and and indulging in that that felt like a really beautiful safe way before i tackled the business of like mm. connecting to somebody else during sex and and potentially potentially reigniting trauma um once i felt really comfortable and just just you know with exploring myself automatically i felt that kind of lightness and willingness to want to explore that with other people too mm. do you think there's that sense as well of i don't want to say rehearsing because that invalidates the experiences for being solo but do you think that in a way it allows you to get familiar with your body again and the feelings again and the sensations again because it can all be pretty overwhelming you know orgasm is a pretty overwhelming experience just by definition but also that sense of touch and it doesn't need to be partnered but we can grow used to it again or also reassociate so what we know is that when someone for example has a sexually traumatic experience it almost in a way this is a gross oversimplification but overwrites our definition of what that is mm. and we need to rewrite it and that might take multiple multiple times because the way our brain works is in that protection mechanism mm. so we know that one big event can take hundreds of small events to rescribe or rewrite or re-narrate and that we can do that in our own time, on our own, and manage, I suppose, a lot of what comes up without having in any way to think about anyone else. Because when it comes to partnered experiences, we're also not just thinking about our own side of it, but their side mm. of it. And I think that's one of the things that creates such a challenge with sex, because we're immediately thinking, okay, what is my partner going to think? What are their norms? We, we A lot of this is assuming as well. We're kind of running through what we think that they're thinking in our heads yes. without even checking it out mm. with them. But it's a way of us learning to control, I suppose, the bits that we can. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it helps us to allow ourselves to let go again, like what we said in that kind of, in the safety of just us just knowing that we can trust ourselves, knowing that we can orgasm and yeah. it's we're not going to fall to shit. I know you've talked about your practices, but what do you think the main, I don't know, message, thing, theme would be that you'd like people to take away from this conversation in terms of what could be really helpful or what might change perspective or even just if it's that one thought that people can go away with I like to think that everyone might leave these episodes with just one whether it's a snippet or just even something that they might start to think about or mull over or pick up or a thread or an idea what do you think that would be in relation to this topic apart from obviously going by your book <laughs> <laughs> I think I think one of the things I would like people to 
to get from this um, conversation is I would like them to question how shame shows up for them. Mm. In what areas do they feel shame? How has that manifested for them? Just get curious, get, get questioning about the impact that shame has had on you. Because I don't think there is anyone out there who hasn't experienced shame in some form or experiences shame in some form. And I think it's just like, let's uncover it. Let's, let's talk about it. Let's shine a light on it because that really does. I know from experience, it has a huge, it has a significant impact on your day-to-day life and you don't even realise how much shame you're carrying. So let's uncover it. And so in a way, is it something like a simple question, which is if you're feeling that way, instead of immediately wondering what you're doing wrong, thinking, I wonder where that's coming from. Exactly. Yeah. Start, start to analyse that. That's a great question. I wonder where that's coming from. Let's, should we give them an example? I'm just trying to think of an example. So I think, okay, so for me, um, in terms of my relational dynamics with people, I've often gone for people who were unavailable, emotionally unavailable or physically unavailable. I was definitely, um, I was recreating a pattern um, of a parental figure. And so, you know, I had to start questioning, instead of, instead of constantly thinking, oh my God, like, why don't they love me? Why aren't they affectionate towards me? Why, why do they not know that I'm feeling like this? Why are they not, yeah, holding me, uh, you know? And I had to look at my thought process, processes and, and how, why that pattern kept occurring in my life. Mm. and you know that came because I was constantly I I felt like I wasn't good enough you know you you spoke about being a child and thinking if I was good then maybe they would have loved me yeah I I I had internalized that feeling and I had manifest that feel that experience in all of my subsequent relationships and so it that takes some deep work to realize that your you know the pattern is never gonna con- is never gonna stop if you don't actually acknowledge your part to play in that. Mm. And so then you know actually I have come to a point where I do believe that I am lovable now. I am I am worthy of the love of somebody else. That it's not intrinsically my fault and that stops me being attracted to people who are not available who are not able to show up in that way so I'm no longer chasing that anymore I'm like okay I see you I'm gonna go the other way Mm -hmm. (laughs) does that make sense you know but that makes so much that comes that comes with awareness and I think if we don't have that awareness we're unable to do anything about it. Yeah. And I think that's the first step, isn't it? Because as humans, our nature is to seek out patterns. Yes, familiar, the familiar. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think the the example you just gave is so valid for so many people. Mm. Why do I always pick the same person? Why do I feel like I've been in the same relationship for the last five people I've dated? Why is this happening again and again and again? And I think the easy thing to do is to say, like, oh, I was just pick the wrong person or, you know, yes. I just, I have a time. I'm just unlucky. And then, <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, and you're then, not. <laughs> but, <laughs> but then once we do start on picking it, we're like, oh, that is interesting. So what are the things that attracted me to that person? Yeah, and why am I still in this situation? But that feeling of familiarity is, well, like, oh, I know how to do that. That feeling of fam- familiarity is attractive. Like, we have to acknowledge that that actually turns us on, that feeling of, of familiarity. And, and even though we 
pretend or not pretend, convince ourselves that we don't like it, we are attracted to it. And so that's, that's something that I'm really trying to work through. And look, the awareness doesn't make you suddenly fixed, yeah. but, it, <laughs> but also, you know, at least you've got something to work with. No, absolutely. Well, thank you. I mean, I've loved, I feel like I could talk to you for days <laughs> I'm just my brain is like wearing which is always the sign of a good time oh, I loved it <laughs> I love this kind of it's the opposite of meditation yeah I love these kind of talks the book is out in a couple of weeks time and you've had some amazing testimonies someone said it's the book that every woman should read mm. and I think if you could sum up the book in one sentence that's probably a really hard thing for me to ask you to do you've just written a whole book. But if you could, <laughs> you've just written a whole book on the way. If you could sum the book up in a way which would frame it for people, how would you describe it in your own words? Because for me, the book is your baby, you know, your, your love. And it's much more important for people to hear it from you than it is from me. I think the tagline, um, how I shed sexual shame and found freedom is basically sums it up I think that's that's exactly what you'll get an insight to is the process what how it started and where I am now I definitely haven't you know completely found freedom there, there will never be an end point it's a continual process but um, this book is a huge part of that shedding shame and a very pivotal and I'm part of my story and I'm just so I'm just so grateful that I have had the that I've had this opportunity to write a book. I, I've dreamt of it for so many years and it feels it feels almost surreal that um, mm. it's actually come to fruition and I'm just so grateful and happy and just, yeah, I feel very, very honoured. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Sexual Wellness Sessions. If you'd like to join us for more conversations, you can click subscribe on either Apple or Spotify podcasts and if you have a moment, please leave us a review. <laughs>